Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely of the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's program, we ask you to please subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes and leave a five-star rating. Today we're going to be talking with Kevin Williamson of National Review, trying to come up with a plan to save conservatism for the cities, and also why it is that uh, the city of Muleshoe, Texas has a problem with Kevin. Today we're joined by Kevin D. Williamson, roving correspondent with National Review. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Hey, what's up? Uh, Kevin, you were uh, gracious, enough, gracious enough to join uh, Lone Star Policy Institute for our launch event earlier this year in Dallas. I just kind of wanted to revisit part of that conversation that we were having about cities. You made a point about Texas being a very conservative state, yet Fort Worth being the, the largest city in the state that regularly elects Republicans or conservatives as a mayor. Why do you think that Republicans, conservatives, libertarians have a hard time getting elected at the local level at, for positions like mayor? Well, I think that libertarians have a hard time getting elected because they have a hard time getting elected anywhere. So we can uh, we can sort of set them to the side. Uh, Republicans have a couple of problems on that front, and those problems are going to be more and more significant to them in places like Texas as it becomes more and more urban. And how urban Texas is is something that isn't really that appreciated by people outside the state, I think, that we have six of the country's 25 biggest cities here. You know, uh, San Antonio is bigger than San Francisco now, I think, something like mm-hmm. that. You know, So we've got some you know, very urban populations here and an increasingly urban share of the population. So, you know, where I'm from uh, in uh, Panhandle, you've got, you know, a number of small towns and rural areas and things like that. But the people are pretty much all in Houston, Dallas Metroplex, Austin, San Antonio, El Paso, places like that. So um, if you're losing city voters, which Republicans reliably do, Uh, That's going to be a problem for you in the long run. There are a couple of things going on there. One is that Republicans don't seem to want city voters very much. I mean, they talk about cities and urban life in really uh, unhelpful terms. I'm a big Ted Cruz fan, as you probably know. But, you know, Cruz talking about Donald Trump and his New York values and as though, you know, New York were some sort of uh, pit of uh, depravity and immorality that we want the rest of the country to look like when New York's actually probably are... uh, most productive and functional big city. I've um, seen Escape from New York. It didn't seem very good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but of course, you know, New York values are very much like, you know, Houston values in, in many ways. People move to cities for particular kinds of reasons uh, because they're looking for uh, economic opportunity, because they're looking for uh, cultural opportunities, because they're looking for a particular way of living. And if you're going to sneer at those things, then people to whom those things are important probably aren't going to rally around your flag very much. And um, Republicans for the last, you know, 20 years or so have had this thing that seems to me just really phony. You know, this uh, good old boy country music, we just small town folks, aw shucks, Mm -hmm. nonsense. And, uh, you know, Ted Cruz went to Princeton, for God's sakes. He's not, you know, he's... He's not some, you know, redneck from uh, from Baytown. You know, he's uh, um, he's a pretty sophisticated guy. Uh, you know, Rick Perry did this thing where he, you know, plays this 
weird cowboy character on television that he's nothing like George W. Bush with that accent that, uh, you know, I'm from from West Texas. I've never heard anyone with that accent besides George <laughs> W. Bush. It's, it's I don't know an Andover accent is what it yeah, is. Yeah, I don't know what that is. It ain't Midland. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, there's this kind of uh, cultural thing of being, you know, anti-city, anti-urban and romanticizing uh, small town life, agricultural life, rural life. And there's there's a lot of value to that as well. I, I, different people live in different places for different reasons. There are people who want to be farmers and ranchers and live in small towns and do that sort of thing. And that's great, too. I've run, you know, small town newspapers over the course of my life. I lived in a town of you know, fewer than 8,000 people uh, for a period of time. So there's something to be said for both of those ways of life. But um, Republicans, for whatever reason have um, a really unhealthy attitude, I think, about what urban life looks like. Part of this is um, reaction. You know, they don't get a lot of votes there. And so it makes them sort of more bitter toward those areas, which is kind of a, you know, snowball effect. Part of it is that uh, evangelical voters, to whom I'm very friendly, and I'm glad they're part of the conservative coalition, but uh, they are kind of culturally at odds with a lot of uh, big city voters, particularly in places like New York and Los Angeles and things like that, although not as much as you would think. Uh, I mean, maybe not San Francisco, but, you know, places like L.A., at least greater Los Angeles, has a much larger community of of evangelical Christians than most people probably realize. Um, It's not really the case in, you know, New York below 125th Street, but that's, you know, that's not the whole country either. So a lot of it is cultural stuff. A lot of it is, of course, just straightforward policy stuff, too, that Republicans don't talk a whole lot about things that people who live in cities tend to care about, like, uh, you know, mass transit. They are often seen as being hostile to public schools, which you would think people who live in big cities like Philadelphia would be hostile to them, too, because they're just terrible there. But um, but they don't they don't see it that way. Partly it's a cultural thing. Partly it's a policy thing. And, you know, partly it's just political incompetence, I think. Do you think that there's something about city, living in a dense uh, environment that sort of uh, requires more government in the sense that if you're in a rural area, A, you probably have to fend for yourself a little bit more. You can't uh, rely on the police coming in time to save you if someone breaks into your house. And then probably if you're not, if you're closer up against your neighbors, there's more issues of friction and other things like that. Uh, Is there a sense in which laissez-faire or small government just doesn't work as well when when people are closer in together yeah i mean there's there's something to that although uh there's a bit of irony there too you know i'm originally from lubbock where our our businesses are cotton higher education and healthcare, which is (laughs) something that's enormously government subsidized something that's an entirely a government project and something that's enormously government subsidized. So, um, you know, we're all right-wingers who are all on welfare up there in Lubbock County. So um, yeah. it's, a, it's a weird thing. But I think, yeah, living in a city like New York or a city like Los Angeles probably makes you more intensely aware of things like physical infrastructure that uh, people mm-hmm. typically rely on government investments for. Now, the lessons I take from having lived in New York for a long time are the opposite of what most progressives do. The, this subway system's a mess. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, right. And the largely privately run ones in places like Hong Kong are much more uh, effective and efficient. You know, New York spends something like 21 times uh, per track mile what they spend building subway lines in Spain. And Spain is not really known for the efficiency of its government, typically. 
you know, so I, I look at these things and take different lessons away from it. Most people don't think about them that carefully, perhaps. So if you're in a place like New York City, you're perhaps more intensely aware of government services than you are if you're in Littlefield, Texas. But um, I think it maybe goes the opposite way, though. I think it's maybe a selection bias issue where the sort of people who want to live in Brooklyn and take the subway to work and do the sort of things that life is like there tend to be politically liberal to start with or politically progressive to start with. And so they move to places and those places become magnets for like-minded people. And if you are someone who is, um, you know, an evangelical homeschooler or a, you know, conservative Mormon, um, you know, maybe Williamsburg doesn't feel all that comfortable to you. And uh, so you don't yeah. tend to select yourself into going to those sorts of places. Although, weirdly enough, homeschooling is really big in Brooklyn. It's become mm-hmm. sort of a, a, a progressive uh, granola hippie thing out there. So um, there's some, some hope for that. Yeah. Um, so partly, yeah, it's, um, I think, the, the physical and uh, social experience of urban life maybe tends to make people a little more sympathetic to government intervention in the economy and uh, – more mindful of infrastructure and that sort of thing, but it's also a self-selection problem, I think. Well, is there some type of conservative approach to this then? If uh, is, there, is there, are there policies beyond just saying uh, conservatives are going to spend less money filling pockets? Is there some <laughs> right. other type of approach that would actually be compelling? Yeah, or maybe conservatives are going to spend more money. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, would be would be helpful. So I think conservatives often you know don't think about things carefully enough. So in terms of conservative policies that might appeal to urban voters, when was the last time you saw a conservative, you know, go in to even, you know, Houston and say, here is my vision for what conservative governments would do for this densely populated part of this city, for, you know, central Houston or south Dallas or the city of San Antonio, as opposed to, you know, Bear County, more uh, widely defined. I mean, you don't see it very much. And there is this, you know, um, 90s vintage uh, strain of generally anti-government sentiment in parts of the Republican Party that make it difficult for them to go out and say, well, maybe in a perfectly libertarian world, we wouldn't have government-run highways and city-run streets, but we actually do have that in this real world. And therefore, we need to think about ways in which we can manage these things and maintain these things in a much more effective and financially responsible way in a way that actually gets these things doing what they're supposed to do. You know, I, I, I joke about the situation with the New York subway, but I really think that, you know, some conservative he would come up there and say, here's my program for fixing this, could probably get some traction from that. And then if he actually went out and did it, you know, and, and people noticed some dramatic improvement in that situation, then they would say, well, hey, this is a good idea. Maybe we should try this elsewhere. Maybe we should take this some kind of same kind of thinking and apply it to some other problems. So I think there are some um, opportunities in things like public education, which is not very good in most big American cities, uh, mass transit, which doesn't necessarily have to be a government monopoly, uh, and many of those kinds of things that uh, conservatives simply just don't pay enough attention to because they are in despair over gaining any political juice out of it. There is one existing conservative model of urban governance, and that's the Giuliani model from the set uh, from the 90s uh which is not exactly a, a free market model uh although juliana i guess was for school choice or whatever but um i don't know how that how applicable that is today 
uh, given that it seems like a, that was largely based on uh, crime and issues related to that that aren't, aren't so uh, salient anymore. Yeah, I think that um, to an extent Republicans were victims of their own success in the question of urban crime. And it, that's a pretty complicated issue because not to take away from anything that Giuliani did on that score in New York, I think he was really quite good and effective. But there were similar decreases in crime in many cities around the country and indeed around the world during the same period in places that were not um, deploying the same policies as Giuliani was. So I think we can say what Giuliani did certainly worked in New York, and um, he certainly deserves credit for that. And New York, oddly enough, you know, being the biggest American city, is the only big American city that's had a couple of Republican mayors uh, there for a while. I mean, you know, Giuliani and then Bloomberg, you know, Republican-ish. Um, but, you know, he's uh, Ronald Reagan compared to Bill de Blasio. So I think New Yorkers <laughs> will certainly miss him when he's gone. But, you know, outside of that, then you're talking about, you know, maybe San Diego, Miami, I guess Indianapolis occasionally has a Republican mayor. Uh, they aren't really very competitive in many other places. So the question of, you know, services like law enforcement is pretty much separate from the question of I'm a free market guy, right? Um, you can have all sorts of fun, theoretical, fringe, libertarian discussions about privatizing the police force, but that's not really on the agenda. No one's really seriously thinking about that sort of thing. This is oddly enough, even like, you know, in San Francisco and Portland, where you don't have a very conservative electorate, and I don't really foresee them electing a Republican anytime soon, but where you've got resurgent problems of crime in the streets there, mostly related to, you know, permanent homeless populations, people who are mentally ill who should be looked after somewhere else, and, uh, and that sort of thing that has made the streets of those cities uh, dangerous and menacing, and it's been bad for the city culturally and financially and, and all sorts of other ways. And that actually is particularly an issue that maybe Republicans should think about is the, the general question of how we deal with destitute, mentally ill people. Uh, for a long time, we had, you know, a county hospital system that looked after them in an imperfect way, but certainly in a better way than turning them out on the streets. And in the 1960s and 70s, a combination of kind of liberationist thinking on the left and penny pinching on the right um, resulted in what was known as deinstitutionalization, in which you know thousands and thousands and thousands of people who should have been under full-time mental health care were essentially thrown out into the streets, uh, with the results that you now see in in lots of major American cities. And we don't really do a very good job of that. And I suspect that even you know a fringe libertarian like me would look at this and say, okay, we've got people who have no money, can't be expected to look after themselves because they have severe mental illness. Yeah, this is a public good. This is a program that we are going to organize in their interest and also in our collective interest to try to deal with this problem in a humane and effective way. And um, National Review, uh, where I work, has written quite a bit about that. Rich Lowry, our editor, is someone who cares about that issue quite a lot. But it isn't something that's caught on very much in the uh, broader Republican thinking. I did want to ask about a specific issue that you've written about recently. It's a policy that I, I had thought was dead and, you know, if not buried. Uh, it was rent control. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Something that I thought was totally discredited, even if it ex still existed some places just from force of habit. No one could actually be for it. But I guess it's like th there's a, a number of new proposals to expand it or, or something. Uh, what What is going on there? Yeah, so there are two big rent control things going on, one in California and one in New York. Um, the California proposal 
Proposition 10 is a ballot initiative that would repeal a law that was enacted in the 1990s, I guess, that limits what cities can do in terms of rent control in California. So it would allow cities to impose more uh, rent control on newer buildings, um, to impose all sorts of new conditions and that sort of thing. So it would it would create a situation in which there would be essentially an unlimited scope for cities to impose rent control programs. And in places like, you know, Berkeley and San Francisco and Oakland, where they've got really bad governance and, uh, and really nutty uh, left-wing governance, you can almost be sure those things would happen. Um, in New York, the proposal has to do with commercial real estate. In some ways, it's more invasive. It would empower the city to tell commercial landlords that they have to renew the leases of their tenants, even if they don't want to. And if they can't come to an agreement on the rent, then it would go to a binding arbitration panel that would set the rent for them. And the landlords would be compelled to rent out their properties at whatever rent this panel sets, even if it's, you know, a money losing uh, proposition for them. And they would be limited on uh, what they can ask for in terms of deposits and a number of other things. Uh, this is a proposal that actually, as it turns out, is too wacky even for Bill de Blasio, whose administration <laughs> has come out against it. But many, many members of the New York City Council are in favor of it, and it very well may end up being implemented in some form. And even de Blasio agreed to a form of it in Inwood, which is up in northern Manhattan, uh, which recently had some changes to its zoning to try to improve land use up there and encourage development. And there's some similar rent control measures for con commercial properties implemented as part of that. So, um, yeah, I spoke to some guys from the National Apartment Association, some other people uh, a while back. They, of course, are opposed to it because they think they should be able to uh, set their rent themselves by negotiating with their tenants in an open market. Shocking. Yeah. And well, and here's something that, you know, funny. I, I have a good friend, a guy I went to college with, I like very much, who lives in San Francisco. And he's as San Francisco a guy as you can imagine. You know, he's got that, you know, the sort of, you know, squishy lefty politics. Um, good guy, but, you know, bad, bad politics. You get him talking about planning and zoning and land use in San Francisco. He sounds like, you know, Ludwig von Mises. He <laughs> is, you know, as libertarian as he can be on this stuff because he's seen the results of it. Because the problem in San Francisco and the Bay Area isn't that there isn't enough regulation of rents and that sort of thing. It's that there's not enough property. That, you know, a combination of the existing rent control laws, land use, and, uh, and other, uh, Restrictions have basically just kept people from building anything like the amount of new residential units that they need, both rental and uh, for purchase uh, properties. And uh, the only, you know, the only real cure for scarcity is is abundance, is to make more stuff to to build more things. But they really won't let them do that in San Francisco. New York is a similar problem where it's partly for organic reasons because, you know, Manhattan is an island and Brooklyn's on an island and Queens is on an island. So that's sort of Staten Island's on an island, as it turns out, too. So that <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, limits what you, what you can do in terms of geography, but also because of regulation and high taxes and a number of other things, it's very difficult to build housing in New York that isn't for rich people. New York has a funny thing where uh, there's a lot of rent stabilization of apartments in New York, including on some pretty expensive ones. And that is implemented because the way it works is the city will act as your 
bond insurance, essentially. So when you raise money to build a new building in New York, the billion dollars it takes or whatever, you sell bonds to do it, the city will give you a bond guarantee, which saves you a lot of money on bond insurance. In exchange, you have to accept rent stabilization for a period of time. And so I lived in a building in you know lower Manhattan where the most expensive apartments in the building I lived in were $60,000 a month. Now, that was not my apartment, obviously. I, I lived in a much, much, much less expensive apartment. But still, um, you know, it cuts off at a certain point. I forget where it cuts off. But um, a significant share of the apartments in this building, including the one I lived in, were rent stabilized because the building had been built with city-backed uh, bonds. And we see that in a lot of places in New York. And some of them are really hilarious because um, there's this one building, I guess it's down by Columbus Circle, where they actually have separate entrances and lobbies. So the rent control side, you know, it's... <laughs> Uh, poor people walk in through one side and the rich people come in through the other side and they never have to see each other. Uh, my building was kind of like that where there were two elevator bays, uh, one of which went up to like the 27th floor and the other which went to 27 and above. So, you know, us proles turned left for the lower elevators and the rich people turned right and went up to their uh, their more expensive apartments. So if you had a situation in which it were easier to build, obviously you're going to get more choice and lower prices and put consumers in a better place. And um, that's something that even, you know, some people on the left uh, get, you know, Matt Iglesias, who is not my favorite writer or human being, um, <laughs> is actually really very intelligent on this stuff. He's written some very useful things about why progressives should think differently than they do about planning and zoning to enable people to build more. And uh, because that's really the best way to help poor people is to build them things they can afford. Since we're talking about cities, one of the very short books that you read, sort of a nice little airplane read, yes. um, is a book called uh, What Doomed Detroit? What are the lessons uh, that other cities can learn from, from the decline of Detroit? Well, race riots aren't very good. <laughs> um, you know, Detroit is a really, it's a remarkable story. And I, I like the city of Detroit. I wish it well. I hope it, you know, it's recovered a little bit from its nadir, I think, and I hope it continues to. Detroit was a really bad combination of racial politics and just traditionally bad urban government, democratic welfare statism, and the heavy regulatory hand that makes it hard to do things, and a number you know of other things. So if you look at the um, the median household income in Detroit, this amazing thing happens where um, it just collapses over the course of uh, twenty years. And if you look at what's happened in those years, it's not that everyone who lived in Detroit lost their jobs. It's that all the people with any money just moved. Um, you know, the, the, the white middle class, very rapidly followed by the black middle class, just exited Detroit en masse, essentially. And the people who stayed behind were essentially those who didn't have enough uh, money or resources to make moving possible or worth it. And also some people who were so wealthy that it didn't make that much difference. Uh, you get that in a lot of places. You know, Manhattan sort of looks like that these days. It's full of people who have so much money that they don't care, so little money they don't care. Increasingly not people with so little money. <laughs> <don't care. laughs> uh, you know, Manhattan's kind of a special case. But yeah, San Francisco is a good example of that, too. Detroit had a run of really, really bad leadership. Uh, Coleman Young is my just favorite mayor in American history because he was just so spectacularly incompetent and uh, there was so much uh, corruption around him. Um, he's just, uh, but he's, a, he's an amazingly amusing uh, figure. I wouldn't want to live in a city that was, was run by him and his, his colleagues, though. And so Detroit is a, 
sort of exaggerated version of what you've seen in a lot of other places. You know, I lived in Philadelphia for a long time. I, I, I ran a newspaper there once upon a time. And Philadelphia imposed its uh, wage tax. You know, Philly is a city with a city income tax like New York. Not many cities have those. So between that and the declining quality of its schools and uh, the crime situation there in the 60s and 70s. So Philadelphia lost between two census periods something like 600,000 residents. And, but they didn't move to Texas. They just moved out to the suburbs, right? So the population of those five counties that are sort of the greater Philadelphia area stayed more or less the same, but the city population just collapsed. You know, Philadelphia used to have more than 2 million residents. And even though it's grown a little bit in recent years, I think it's down to still like 1.5 or something like that. So people are mobile, and particularly people with money are mobile. So the people that you really want to keep in your city are the ones that are easiest to lose, that can pack up and go somewhere else. You know, the funny thing about Detroit is, uh, you know, Detroit was the center of the American automobile industry for a long time. And competition from the Japanese and the Europeans and, and other changes in that industry have, have obviously hurt Detroit and the greater Detroit area and Michigan uh, more generally to an extent. Nobody ever asks what seems to me an obvious question that I looked into when I was writing this book, which is why was the automobile business based in Detroit to start with? And there was actually a really good reason for that, because before Detroit was the center of the American automotive industry, it was the place where marine engines were built because, uh, you know, shipping was really big through that part of uh, part of Michigan. So people who built boat motors lived in Detroit, in and around Detroit. So when you started looking for places you could put together where you could put together car engines, you had the expertise already there in Detroit because training people who make boat engines to make car engines wasn't really that difficult. So right around the time Henry, Henry Ford launched his company, during that 10 or 15 year period, there's something like 100 automobile companies launched in the United States, mostly in Ohio and New England, none of which really made it. Uh, the ones that were launched in Michigan did because as weird as it sounds to say it now, in retrospect, Detroit succeeded because that's where the smart people were. Uh, the people who knew how to do this work. And, uh, you know, so Ford and the other companies that were based there were successful because Detroit had the right people in it. And Detroit doesn't really have the right people in it anymore. Um, you know, the, the most highly skilled, high income, highly educated people left. Now, some people have started to return there, and that's great. I hope that they continue to do so. And I, I'd like to see Detroit thrive. Just as I'd like to see Philadelphia thrive. It's, um, you know, it made some real progress uh, in the last uh, 20 years or so. But then you start looking at places like, you know, Cleveland. Why the hell would you move to Cleveland? Unless <laughs> I mean, unless you had to, right? Yeah. So, I mean, let's say, you know, you're, you're coming out of the University of Texas with an engineering degree, and maybe you don't want to stick around Austin because you're tired of Austin, and you've got some job offers. Maybe they're in the Bay Area where it's expensive to live, or New York where maybe you don't like the weather and it's also expensive to live, or maybe it's someplace like Atlanta, which is kind of boring but pleasant, and then you get an offer in Cleveland. I mean, they're going to have to add, what, an extra $100,000 a year to get you to go to Cleveland, even though it's not a very expensive place to be, just because why would you want to be there? Those kinds of cities have some real long-term challenges, I think, because it's going to be very, very difficult, I think, to reinvigorate a place like that. Well, what about what about this idea? The, uh, the, the president is uh, imposing national security tariffs uh, uh, on, yes. on steel, aluminum, and even vehicles. Isn't that going to uh, bring uh, the Midwest roaring back? Uh, no, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think so. And that was the facetious question, I think. I don't think uh, maybe, that maybe just a little. Yeah, I mean, the thing about that is, and that just makes me want to bang my head on the desk, is if you look at the 
value added from the American companies that produce things like steel and aluminum versus the value added of the American companies that consume steel and aluminum to produce other things. It's a very bad proposition to punish the steel consumers in order to reward the steel producers. Uh, you know, I talked to some people after well, a few months ago when he first started talking about the tariffs who were in the uh, construction business. And they're saying, yeah, we are front loading uh, a lot of our orders for steel products and getting them done as quickly as we can because if this adds 15% uh, to the cost of steel, that adds 2% to the overall cost of our construction budget for this project. And our profit margin on this is going to be 3% under a best case scenario. So this is going to essentially cripple them. You know, So construction and building and companies like Caterpillar and Boeing that do manufacturing here are all big consumers of metals. And making those things more expensive is not going to do much for them. You know, if you could, if there were some policy way to trick yourself into prosperity, you know, we would we would be doing it. One of the things that always sort of annoys me is people, well, the, the economy did really, really good under Clinton. As though, like, you know, Bill Clinton came in and he was this smart guy who created this program that caused prosperity in the 1990s. And then everyone forgot how to do it. Or pushed, that Republic- the button. There's a button in yeah. the Oval Office. And, you know, sometimes they just forget to push the button. Uh-huh. Right. Or the Republicans know how to do it, but they won't do it because, you know, it was Bill Clinton's idea. Um, <laughs> you know, if there were some set of policies that reliably produced growth and prosperity and low unemployment and wage growth and all the rest of that stuff, everyone in both parties would support those policies. Um, but there isn't a way to do that. I mean, the best you can really do is we're going to have rule of law and property rights and generally low taxes and efficient and effective government to the extent that we can. And, um, and that's <laughs> the best you can do. A, there's your famous dog. Yes, the dog is barking. So we have a delivery outside, I think, or maybe just a car going by. And Katie is uh, very high strung today for some reason. So I, I want to challenge you just a little bit. I, you said that there, there isn't some magic policy, but there, there's one that seems to be working right now. I think that you described the uh, uh, the the tax bill as a dessert first budget. Yeah. We are experiencing a lot of growth right now. I, I just paid my taxes. We did the uh, uh, we got the extension, so I did my taxes, and I was very pleased to see that I paid a lot less in tax this year. Mm-hmm. But I've also recently thanked my children and their children yes. <laughs> uh, for the debt that they're gonna they're gonna be paying for paying for my retirement. So sort of shifting gears a little bit talking about that on one hand there is there is the possibility of sort of juicing the economy with tax cuts but is there any way that we could have meaningful cuts to federal spending since it's almost you know the, the vast majority is entitlement spending it's transfer payments yeah um the idea of juicing the economy through tax cuts is kind of right-wing keynesianism right it's the you know the old the old stimulus thing and, uh, you know, maybe there's some short-term benefits to doing that. I don't know. Uh, I don't have the economic expertise to say. I can tell you that there have been lots of occasions in which there have been tax cuts that haven't uh, coincided with eras of strong economic growth. And I can tell you that there are eras of strong economic growth that haven't coincided with tax cuts. So I'm not sure the case there is as obvious as people think it is. Uh, you know, the, the nature of the economy is that it is complex and cyclical, and it doesn't necessarily respond as strongly to policy changes as it does to factors that are exogenous to policy. So that's a, you know, that's a, that's a questionable premise to start with, I think. But it certainly is the case that when you're running deficits, as we continue to, there is no such thing as a tax cut. There's a tax deferral. 
Mm-hmm. Because as long as you're running those deficits, you're going to pay it back with interest in the future, as you were saying. So you're taking out uh, you know, a loan from your kids and grandkids and using their future prosperity as the collateral. I don't think that's necessarily probably the best way to go about it uh, either. In terms of reforming the entitlements, yeah, that's going to be the great challenge for American politics for both parties and people of all political tendencies going forward over the next 30 years. Because either we're going to do that or we're going to have an economic disaster. Um, You know, Canada went through this once upon a time. The Nordic countries have gone through it. And there are ways to handle this and to reform your fiscal situation to make it more sustainable. And there there are bad ways to do it. And the best way to do it is, of course, to do it soon. Because the more quickly you act on these things, the less pain there is. If you do it when there's an actual fiscal crisis going on, you get forced into making all sorts of radical policy decisions that you don't really want to make. You know, the good news on this, I think, if you look at Canada's example from the 1990s, they had a left-wing government when they went through their fiscal crisis, and their solution was essentially $10 in tax cuts for every dollar, or $10 in spending cuts for every dollar in tax increases. So they got the best deal that American Republicans could ever hope for uh, from their left-wing government because it was obviously the right course of action at the time. Uh, for us, you know, we're a little different because no one's ever seen a fiscal crisis like that in an economy that is one-fifth of the world's economic output. And, uh, you know, that's going to be uh, that's going to be an interesting and worrisome development if we let it get to that point. And well, I'm, I'm afraid that we might. Well, but one of my, one of my favorite authors has written a book. And it's called The End is Near, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> yes. So how, and the, the subtitle is How Going Broke Will Leave America Richer, Happier, and More Secure. Yeah. So to, to borrow a word from uh, your colleague Jonah Goldberg, do you think that the Trump administration may be eminentizing the eschaton? Do you think that the post-Trump era is going to be this era where we're going to sort of rethink government? Yeah, and that's from Buckley, isn't it, uh, not Goldberg? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's an old NR thing, eminentizing the eschaton. I think that we will do the smart thing on fiscal policy once we have exhausted every other option, because the smart thing will be will be the most difficult and least popular thing. Um, but yes, I have. I'm a sort of a short-term pessimist, long-term optimist. I think that once we um, rein in the defective and destructive American welfare state to some extent, because we have to. That ultimately frees up a lot of capital and innovation that we can use to solve social problems in a different way from, well, let's have the Department of XYZ come up with a program for this, and we're going to regulate it on one side and subsidize it on the other and hope that works out okay. Um, You know, there's a particular character to the American welfare state that isn't well understood. It's much more defective and deficient than it is, say, in places like Sweden. Um, Partly that's because of the way it's structured. We tend to do things at the federal and national level. Whereas a lot of the Nordic welfare states administer their programs at the more local level, uh, which tends to be more effective and cooperative for all sorts of reasons. There are also important cultural differences there, and there's also you know size and scale differences, I think, that, uh, that have to be taken into consideration as well. But there's no reason that we cannot apply the same sort of intelligence and creativity and innovation that, you know, I use the iPhone always as the example for this, that produce that to deal with things like healthcare and education and people's retirements and other sorts of social problems we have. It's not that we don't have the capital, that we don't have the resources to deal with our problems. We're a ridiculously wealthy country. We have more than enough money to solve 
or pressing social problems. What we do, though, is we piss a lot of it away in, uh, in very, very poorly organized and often corruptly run uh, programs. I wrote another little broadside called The Dependency Agenda, in which I get into this to, uh, to some extent. You know, if you start looking at things like Medicaid and trying to actually calculate, you know, what the benefit is for the money we spend there, you will have a hard time coming up with anything that actually nets out positive. Okay, so a uh, little bit of a different topic, but I want to I want to talk about the media environment. Uh, mm. You mentioned at various points uh, that you would work for a paper in Philly, and I think also Lubbock. Mm. Uh, and so I I think your career trajectory I think reminds me of kind of the an older model where a person starts out, <laughs> you know, they start, they start out in a small paper and then they work their way up uh, as opposed to, you know, kind of a more current model where, you know, you go to an Ivy league school and then you have an internship at the center for American progress. And then you're 25 years old and you're, you know, writing a, you're like the national correspondent for the Washington post or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, do you like you know? Do you think that uh, like how do you think that that shift uh, kind of has affected the the quality of commentary out there? And uh, do you think that that your you know the experience that you had coming up uh, helped you get you know what what sort of extra perspective do you think that it helped you gain? Yeah, it's funny. I'm in my um, you know middle forties, and I already kind of feel like a dinosaur, even though I'm not really uh, all that old. I don't think I had a very, very twentieth century journalism career, in which you know my work was as an editor of daily and sometimes weekly uh, newspapers. I actually started off at the largest uh, newspaper I've worked at, which was the Indian Express Group, which is based in Bombay. Uh, where I was, I guess, an illegal immigrant. It's uh, not, <laughs> not technically legal for foreigners to work in the press there. At least it wasn't in the 90s. Um, but there, were, you, were you actually in India or you were just... Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. there for, for some time. And uh, so I went from there to the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, uh, from there to Philadelphia, where I was the editor of one of the suburban newspapers. And then I started a daily newspaper in Philadelphia 2004 or so in a partnership with an investor who... Uh, very soon wished he hadn't been there. <laughs> 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 newspaper, he should have known better. <laughs> yeah, I, I told him not to put in anything he couldn't afford to lose, but um, I'm not sure how that worked out. Anyway, but that newspaper ran for about five years, I guess. So launching a daily newspaper in Philly with a conservative point of view probably wasn't the uh, best business plan in the history of uh, American entrepreneurship, but it was a lot of fun. And I, I ran a little small town newspaper in Colorado for a short period of time and, and some other things along those lines. Uh, so I was, you know, just a regular newspaper guy before I went into doing uh, political commentary. And uh, that was always something I kind of did as a sideline. And as it turns out, you know, people prefer me doing that these days than they do uh, prefer me running their newspapers. So um, and I kind of like it better anyway, because running newspapers is really hard work. <laughs> and... Um, I suspect that's one of the – well, there are two things going on with the quality of commentary. One is that newspapers don't make as much money as they used to. They're still pretty profitable businesses, but they're not as wildly profitable as they used to be, and they don't know how to deal with that. They tend to be run badly. Uh, American newspapers are run typically by hereditary family fiefdoms, uh, and fifth-generation rich guys are just never as good at running stuff as their great-great-grandfathers were. It's just inevitable that it works that way. Or they're run by corporations that are dominated by people who came up through the you know advertising circulation 
and business side of journalism rather than people who came up to the editorial side. So the actual content of the newspaper is the last thing they think about. The other thing, of course, is the obvious technological change where with newspapers, you had some time to put it together and you were putting it in print. So you thought a little bit more about what you were going to do because you couldn't just go in and change it if it was wrong or if there was some kind of obvious error. Digital journalism is not like that. Um, you know, something might get up on the web seven minutes after it's, uh, you know, been written, if that long, um, yeah. if it takes that long. And, um, you know, the great thing about the Internet was supposed to be everyone's voice can be heard. And the terrible thing about the Internet is everyone's voice can be <laughs> heard. And most people don't actually have anything all that intelligent or interesting to say. And some of those people, oddly enough, you know, are, are professional uh, commentators. So there's a huge appetite for it. You know, it's great that people are reading so much and that there's, um, you know, financially, I actually think that journalism's in probably in better shape than it's ever been. But in terms of its culture and its content, less so. Although I'm actually pretty optimistic about that stuff, too. I think these things work themselves out over time. So, uh, so tell us what would be the most surprising thing to an outsider to living in Mule Shoe, Texas. Um, I don't know. I never lived in Mule Shoe, Texas. I was oh, always you did. <laughs> no, I was kind of joking about Mule Shoe. So, <laughs> I grew up in. We're gonna totally uh, cut this out then. <laughs> You know, actually, it's funny. I used to be on Twitter, as some of you know. I don't do that anymore. And uh, But I used to always retweet the news from uh, Mule Shoe. And the local TV station there just blocked me. Because... <laughs> Because they would, you know, they would get these, you know, 10 million responses to uh, some some news story they'd done. Mostly people, you know, kind of making fun of their name and whatnot. So Mule is a perfectly nice little town. It's uh, it's a farming place mainly, and uh, they're very into uh, high school basketball there. I grew up in Lubbock, which is not too far from there, which is right. the the big sophisticated urban metropolis that you go to if you're in Mule and you're looking for some, you know, exciting city life. Right. Yeah. I. Uh... I went to law school at Texas Tech, and I remember I a young remember a young lady the first year looking at a map, and she goes, "What's this town, Mullishoe?" So that's how I first <laughs> learned about Muleshoe. Nice. Yeah, I, I make fun of Muleshoe because Muleshoe is the only town you're allowed to make fun of if you're from Lubbock. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess there's Midland. You're allowed to make fun of Midland too. I guess. Well, Kevin, thanks thanks again for uh, for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me, and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. 